This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, episode number 275. This is your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM network. I am Bruce Gibson. I thank you so much for joining us and with me as he always is every single freaking time. It is Dan Gunther. How are you, Dan? I'm doing great. I'm so pumped to talk about a Star Trek novel today. You know, this is, we've said this before, this is the highlight of my week. And I don't know what that says about my life, but I think it says a pretty good thing about this show. So <laughs> it's, it's a highlight of my week too, because we love reading the novels and then you and I just love talking about them. We have a lot of fun with this. Definitely. Absolutely. And we always love to hear what people have to say back to us about the novels. So that's always great, too. So that being said, let's go to a quick news item here. So we have this friend of the show named David Mack. He's an author that has written many, many Star Trek novels and has been on the show many, many times. Well, David Mack posted on his Facebook page that he is now employed as a consultant for the animated Star Trek Lower Decks, as well as a second animated Star Trek series whose details remain classified. However, we do know that is the animated show that's going to be on Nickelodeon. Yes, the still untitled Nickelodeon kid-oriented Star Trek animated series. So this is huge news. This is really well-deserved for David Mack as well. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, I can't wait to, to see David Mack's writing for a television series. But he did want to clarify, he is not a writer on these shows. Uh, he's not in the writer's room. He's just a consultant. So he's giving notes and uh, that sort of thing for the shows that the writers are then taking and, and acting upon or not as they see fit. So, uh, but still great opportunity and, you know, kind of following 
behind in the footsteps of Kirsten Beyer. You know, I love to see the more, more involvement with these novel writers on the television side of stuff because they've been telling really great stories for years and they deserve a voice. So that's awesome. Absolutely. And I'm glad he's a consultant and not a writer because that means he has more time to keep doing Star Trek novels. Here, here. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a great silver lining. I like that. <laughs> but if he did become a writer of a series, I would be really stoked about that. I'd be really excited. But yeah, this is great news for him that he's consulting on those series. And when he sent that out, he put the hashtag dream job. And I can imagine it definitely being a dream job for him. So that's great. Congratulations, David. Definitely. I, man, that is a dream job. That's very cool. You know, my dream job is to host a podcast about Star Trek books and comics. Well, I've got news for you, Bruce. You've got it. Ooh, thank you. Does it pay well? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may be my dream job, but not my wife's because she would say, <laughs> show me the paycheck. <laughs> Absolutely. I, yep. Right there with you. <laughs> Well, let's go on to a Facebook post of our episode number 273, where we talked about the novel Orion's Hounds. And so we have that post in the Babel Conference on Facebook, and we like to read what people had to comment about that episode here. And so the first one, surprise, surprise, is from Justin Ozer. But he's not the only one. He's not the only one, okay? But yeah, Justin says, I vote for covering the motion picture novelization for its 40th anniversary. I actually haven't read it yet, but I'm really intrigued by it. And Duncan Barrett replied, second. I have a very strong feeling we probably will do uh, about the motion picture novelization. If none of you heard on that episode, uh, they're re-releasing the novelization to the motion picture this fall that was originally written by Gene Roddenberry. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's actually a really good book. I read it a long time ago and I've since read it actually again. Uh, and it's one of the few novelizations that I really, really enjoyed. And it's kind of famous. It's got some weird stuff in there uh, famously, and it was written by Gene Roddenberry. Um, so it's, you know, a little different, but I think it would be a lot of fun to cover. And speaking of that novelization, Lancelot Narian comments, it's an open secret that the Star Trek The Motion Picture novelization was written by Alan Dean Foster. He also wrote the book versions of Star Wars and CE3K, even though they were attributed to their respective directors. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to put on the Star Trek nerd hat and, and give the actually here. Uh, that is a it's a common misconception that Alan Dean Foster wrote the motion picture novelization. It was, believe it or not, actually written by Gene Roddenberry. And uh, I did double check this as well, because I had always heard that this was not true, that it wasn't written by Alan Dean Foster. So I did a little bit of background research. But uh, this seems to stem from um, the fact that Alan Dean Foster contributed a story outline that the film, the motion picture, was based on, as well as some confusion uh, with the 1977 Star Wars novelization that Alan Dean Foster did ghostwrite under George Lucas's name. Um, but according to numerous sources, uh, Alan Dean Foster has been asked about this a number of times, and since doing the original Star Trek log books, the only contribution that Alan Dean Foster made after that was when the Star Trek 2009 film came out and he wrote the novelization of that. So he did not write 
the uh, motion picture that was in fact Gene Roddenberry. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things, if you actually do read it and compare it to Alan Dean Foster's work, all respect to Gene Roddenberry, but the, the writing is a little bit more amateurish than Alan Dean Foster generally writes. And that's because Gene Roddenberry was not a novelist. He was a television writer and uh, that was his first novel that he ever wrote. So, um, yeah, a little bit of history lesson about the motion picture novelization there. It's really interesting if you do want to read more about it. But now Alan Dean Foster did write the story to the motion picture for the film. Yes, he wrote the story outline that the that the uh the screenplay was based on. Right. But uh he did not write that novelization. That novelization was based on the film and written by Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. And going back to the Star Wars novelization, I had that when I, I bought that novelization in uh seventy seven and then I had Alan Dean Foster sign it just a few years ago, even though his name isn't on it, but we now know that he wrote that one. So Oh, that's very cool. And his name is on it now. <laughs> it's <laughs> on, on it now. Anyway. On my edition, it's on there. <laughs> so it's very confusing. But anyway, that was yeah, that's quite interesting. So uh Justin Ozer posted again saying that he loved Orion's Hounds. He says, it's one of my favorite Star Trek novels for all the reasons that you gave. It's very complex, very thought-provoking story without being confusing. And I love seeing all the different kinds of Cosmozolans. By the way, I like Star Jellies as the name for the space, je- for the space jellyfish. <laughs> Star <laughs> Jellies, it's so cute. Yeah, it's it's just... I. I I like it too, but it's just weird to think of Starfleet officers. Oh, the star jellies. It just sounds a little silly, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob Smith comments, great Trek books that never were. Peter David and William Campbell's IP. And that follows on my really lame joke in that episode about minding your P's and Q's. Uh, go listen to the episode to figure that one out. Should you review the 40th anniversary release of the motion picture novelization? Absolutely. I've never read it since I generally skip over the novelizations, but from what I've heard, this one is weird enough to be worth checking out. P.S. Speaking of episodes I'd like to hear, I'd be interested in hearing an episode devoted to your general opinions of Treklet. Your favorite books, the first book you read, authors you wish would write another Trek book, books you think are underappreciated, and so forth. And uh, I'm looking at my screen now, and it looks like Bruce is writing down ideas from your comments. So uh, that might be something that we look at doing in the future if, you know, we want to take a little bit of a break from covering a novel. I think that's a that's a fun idea. Yeah. And just so you guys know, uh, the show has always, for the most part, just reviewed novels and comics. And we are going to start branching out into other topics uh, for the feature. And that will be starting next week. Not often. We're still going to focus a lot on reviewing books and comics, but every once in a while we'll do something a little special that's kind of a topic. So this could be one of those. Yeah. Should we definitely. even tell them what next week's going to be about or should we just keep that a surprise? I think we should keep that a surprise. I think that's going to be a fun one. Okay. Well, then we'll go to the next comment. Surprise, surprise. Christopher Baca says in the September 2019 issue of Aviation History, it's a great article on Gene Roddenberry and his service in World War II from Pacific War B-17 pilot to Star Trek creator. And he posted that article, the image of it, into this Babel conference. And yeah, there's this picture. Wait, which one is he in that squad? I didn't look at it in that detail, but oh, I love how the plane's called uh, Croc of Crap. Yeah. <laughs> 
You know, I, I can't tell offhand from the picture. I'm not zoomed in enough. Let me make my window a little bigger yeah, and see if either. I can figure it I out. Yeah, I can't. I'm, yeah, I'm not certain enough to say which one. <laughs> I haven't narrowed down to a few, but I don't even know if I'm right about that. So, yeah, you'd think there'd be a, a circle or a little highlight or something. But <laughs> Yeah, but very interesting. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing that, though. That's really cool. Uh, Oz Trekkie posts another great addition in the Titan series. The Titan is finally off on its mission of exploration and lands smack bang in the middle of a moral quagmire due to leaping before they looked. In this instance, I think that Riker acted precipitously and then had to find a way out that assisted all parties. I love how Christopher finds all the shades of gray in this situation and no group is really the bad guy. I also love the growing interaction and backstory for the Titan crew. I have enjoyed the Q conflict so far, and it will be interesting to see if the next issue puts the Traveler's powers up on par with the Q. Five stars for Orion's Hounds. Well, thank you so much for that review there. Uh, and I got to say, kudos to you. I've been noticing you have been rocketing through the past episodes of Literary Treks, and you are now caught up and up to date. And I've been really enjoying your comments uh, on each episode, and I'm glad you got caught up so that we were able to get one of your comments in uh, on time to share on the show. So thank you for that, and thanks for listening to the ep the episodes. And I really love reading your thoughts when you share them with us. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's been fun watching him hit all the episodes as quickly as he can and, and commenting <laughs> on the different books. So yeah, thanks for that. And again, if anybody wants their comments read on a future episode of Literary Treks, please join the Babel Conference in Facebook. Look for the show posts and uh, post your thoughts there, uh, whether it's on the comics or the news that we talk about or the feature, whatever it is. Uh, just let us know. And we'll read it here on the show. But that being said, why don't we go into the feature? Because we are going to talk about Star Trek The Next Generation Q&A, and that is written by Keith R.A. DeCandido. I'm really looking forward to it. So we recently reviewed the novel Star Trek The Next Generation Resistance. Now this is the novel that follows that, and it's written by Keith R.A. DeCandido, published in 2007. It's Q&A. And the Q, I assume, stands for Q, the character Q, because it's about Q, or Q is a big part of this novel. I don't know who the A would be. Maybe it's just, <laughs> you know a great captain named Picard. I don't know. Anyway, but anyway, the novel's <laughs> called Q&A. And uh, yeah, again, the next generation crew of the Enterprise E. This is a post-Nemesis novel. And uh, of course, Picard and crew along with Q in this book. And so speaking of crew, because it takes place in post-Nemesis and Riker and Troy are off on the Titan and Data's no longer around, we have some new crew members on the Enterprise. And some of those crew members are Kei Dohada, Talana, and Le Benzon. And so now these characters are quite interesting because uh, Kei Dohada replaces Data. Talana is a Vulcan who we discussed about in Resistance, and she is the counselor of the ship. Interesting that it's a Vulcan that is the counselor. And then Le Benzon is a security officer. Uh, basically taking the role that Worf used to have because Worf is now the first officer of the Enterprise. So uh, quite some interesting dynamics here with these characters and learning about them more, which is nice when you have some new characters that are part of the crew. So Dan, what did you think of these characters? Who really stood out to you? 
I actually, I, I really enjoyed these characters. I think Talana, to me, kind of took a bit of a backseat in this one because we've got a lot of focus on her in Resistance. She still has, you know, some parts, but um, I, I feel like we didn't really spend as much time with her as we did with Keito Hara and Le Benzon. And uh, I'm really kind of liking these characters. I love that, you know, we're seeing how they're integrating into the crew and they're not treated like background characters or you know the lower decks characters they're part of the senior staff now and it's hard as a reader who's you know grown up with the next generation and this core group of people to kind of accept new people into that group so to see them you know Kitahara is the second officer of the enterprise and the uh, operations manager She's, like you said, taken over for data and sitting in on the department meetings and that sort of thing. So, you know, it, it kind of takes a little bit of work for me to like, oh, yeah, no, no, she's a main character. She's she's like if Star Trek The Next Generation were a television show at this time instead of books, she would be, you know, and so and so as Miranda Kedahara, you know, in the opening credits. So, you know, and and the thing that I really like is how they're integrating with the old crew members. So we get kind of this subplot with Jordy and trying to figure out why she's, why he's having a difficult time uh, with Kate Ahada and these weird feelings that he doesn't know what to do with. And he kind of comes to terms with them and realizes it's because she's replacing data, his best friend. And of course we see his um, a lot to do with Jordy for some reason, his uh, relationship with Le Benzon as well. And, and how he thinks this guy's kind of a jerk and doesn't really like him until he gets to know him and kind of figures a little bit more about what makes the guy tick and that sort of thing. So I think the author's doing an interesting job of, of integrating that and, and making that a central part of the story. Yeah. As you're talking about that, it just occurred to me, there's a theme going on with these characters because you're saying about, Jordy not getting along or not accepting Kato Hada and having issues with that and thinking like Benzon is a jerk. And then Talana in the previous novel resistance, a lot of the crew didn't care for her. We have these crew members that people <laughs> seem to have issue with. And then in the long run, we tend to like them or understand them or whatever. But uh, Kato Hada was quite interesting to me in that relationship with Jordy because Jordy's loss of data, it's understandable that someone who's filling the role that data had, he might had, you know, a difficult time with it. Not that he doesn't like the person, but that was what was happening. Like he was finding his feelings like, I can't stand her. I don't like her. And I don't really know why, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, I know that data's gone and she has to fill that role. And, and, and I have no problem with that. That's nothing against her. He's like, but I still don't know why she just, she gets on my nerves, you know? And it's like, mm -hmm. and I kept wondering for a long time too, it's like, yeah, what, what is the problem? And it really did come down to the fact that, you know, he's still getting over the loss of data and she really shouldn't be there. You know, mm -hmm. she should not be in that role. Data should be. And I think that's the feeling he was having. It's like, you're not data. Yeah. And I think we've all had that, right? Where there's someone or something that's just bugging the heck out of you and you don't really know why that is. And if we had a counselor or, and I mean, you know, a lot of times therapy and counseling is really good at getting to the heart of that. Uh, I, I think we would discover that a lot of times it's an issue that we have with something that is really outside of the control of uh, either person in the relationship. And, 
you know, you kind of dig down and figure out, oh, this is this is the problem I'm having. And it has nothing to do with her as a person. It just has to do with my own kind of weird subconscious stuff that we can't even control because, you know, intellectually we can be like, yeah, no, she's doing her job. This is her assignment and she's very good at it too. There's there's no reason that she can't excel in this position, but something in our subconscious is telling us this is wrong and and manifests itself as this annoyance or that kind of thing. Like the big thing that he had was when she called him Jordy, he resented it and he was yeah. like but everyone else calls me Jordy. Why do I resent this? And right. she's my superior officer now. Like she can do that. And he couldn't figure it out until he talked to the counselor. Yeah. And she is a great person. I mean, I like the character and I, I know we get to see more of her in later novels. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, by the way, I've, this is the first time I've read this one. I never read this novel oh. before. Okay. I, I did read it years ago. Um, I can't remember exactly how long ago. Uh, enough that I remembered a few things, but, uh, it's still, it was long enough ago that there's a bunch that I didn't remember and I really enjoyed. So, yeah. And, and Lebenzon, I mean, I liked his character too. He is a little rough, but I thought it was interesting when he had that whole thing where he's like, oh, I can't come to uh poker night. I have to, you know, meet with the security officers, my team, whatever. And, and, you know, basically I have work to do. And then he's Jordy layer sees him in uh well what's it called the writing wait what's it the happy bottom writing club <laughs> <The> happy <laughs> bottom writing club aka like 10 forward but the enterprise e version of it but you know he sees them in there with his crew and they're yucking it up and having drinks and Troy's like what and then he realizes well yeah he said he needed to spend time with his team and that's what he's doing and jordy approaches them kind of hesitant like hey and finds out this is a great guy but he kind of has his defenses up around other people but not his own team mm-hmm. you know and in the case of lebenzon it kind of goes in both directions as well because he has this kind of distrust of officers which i thought was really interesting because he started out as an enlisted crewman that got a field commission and clawed his way up the ranks that way so he's always kind of had this like you know the the idea of the non-commissioned officer being the working man they work for a living and the officers are the the cushy people that have the cushy jobs and stuff and he's come from that world and is now having to be a part of a crew and and it's outright stated in this novel the enterprise is a ship of officers that's why you see so many ensigns and lieutenants and not a lot of enlisted crewmen and he initially didn't really want to join this crew, but he kind of got a talking to from an admiral who was a friend of his saying like, you know, you refuse this uh, promotion, you're kicking your career in the butt and you'll never get another opportunity. So he kind of has to go along with it and, you know, is making his new life on the Enterprise surrounded by all these officers that, you know, he wasn't a big fan of uh, before. And now he's one of them. So it's an interesting perspective. And this opportunity was given to him by Worf. Yeah, that's true too, because they knew each other and uh, when they were kids, first of all, and then uh, he encountered Worf when he was uh, during the Dominion War on Deep Space Nine. So it's kind of cool little backstory there. Which means also that he probably doesn't feel like, you know, he has to meet with Worf's approval too much or work in his shadow because he's there because Worf wants him there. So he already feels like he has that approval from the first officer. Yeah, which is, you know, a good position to be in for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. 
so then we have this planet called Gorsatch 9. And uh, really an odd planet. Imagine that. In Star Trek, there being an odd planet somewhere. Almost <laughs> a strange new world, I would say. <laughs> mm, maybe there's some new civilizations on it. I don't know. Well, we should definitely boldly go. Because I don't think anyone's gone there before. So No one or no man. Either one. <laughs> <laughs> but a landing party is sent down to the planet. And they start to find that the, the landscape and some of the objects on the planet. I mean, they're not seeing any life forms necessarily. Not any you know intelligent life forms walking around or, or anything to that effect. They're just kind of scoping out this thing. They're almost like in a... In a, in a almost like a crater type area or something, or everything is every object they find, every landscape is perfectly symmetrical, which seems to be artificial. And then they see these caverns, and when they try to approach one of the caverns to walk into it, they just find themselves stopping. They just stop, not like they mm-hmm. hit a wall and fall back, like in you know, boom, hit invisible wall and fall back and like, Oh, what was that? It was just like, all of a sudden they just find themselves not being able to move forward. They're just standing there. Something mm-hmm. is preventing them from going in. I, I thought that was a really interesting part of the book. Just the description of that feeling of just not being able to move. And I think Kate Ahada says something like my brain's telling my leg to lift up and go forward, but it's just not happening. Be a really weird feeling. <laughs> yeah. I just picture it as not so much like, you know, I'm trying to, push myself but i can't it's just like my body is just no it's just it's just standing here as much as i say to go forward i'm just you know it's like one of those things where it's like i lay in bed and in the, i wake up in the morning and i'm like i gotta get up but my body just won't get up it just wants to lay here <laughs> i get that every morning <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it's like this is uh not getting up in the morning so it's revealed later that this planet is an artificial construct by them who is them? Well, that's what they're called, them, with a capital T. And so the planet is being used to test humanity or anyone who finds the planet. It's, it's a test from them. Mm-hmm. Dan, who is them? Well, to answer that, maybe we should uh, go into the spoiler territory of this book because this is pretty cool. I think this is, this is one of those Star Trek novels where this like this big idea kind of thing. And I'm like, this is really cool what they've come up with here. So do you so, think it's really cool? I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so them seem to be the race or the creatures or the entities who create the universe, who create everything. And they're very high above even the cube. And we learn over the course of the novel that, you know, they, they created the universe and then they got bored and destroyed it and did again and again and again and again kind of thing, you know, looking for something that interested them, basically. They're just bored by the universe eventually and recreate it. You know, it's, it's not a unique concept, but a really kind of interesting one. You know, you could call it you know, God, I guess, but I think even like our ideas of what God is are smaller than what this seems to be. Like, I don't know. I think this is really neat. And the Q are trying to prevent the universe from being destroyed again. And like the Q are even boring to these guys. Like they're just, you know, they're not amused by anything. 
And this planet is kind of, uh, like you said, a test for whoever finds it. And the Q seem to be terrified that the Borg will find this planet first. And I love that because, and this is, I'm just going to be nerding out and tying everything in Star Trek together. One of my absolute favorite moments in any Star Trek, believe it or not, comes from Voyager when Q's son, Q, <laughs> is, uh, you know, making Borg ships appear and attack Voyager and, you know, Q shows up and makes them all disappear and walks calmly over to his son and is like, if the continuums told you once, they've told you a thousand times. Don't provoke the Borg. You know, and I just, <laughs> yeah. I love this idea that the Q are kind of scared of the Borg. And we kind of learn in this novel that part of that reason is they don't want the Borg to find them because that will make the universe end. Yeah. I don't know. I just, that was like chilling. Like yeah, I was like, because- that's cool. Yeah, because them, as you said, I mean, they, they've been destroying universes over time. And now, you know, this universe exists and, you know, you don't want them to get bored again and they're going to destroy this one, which would destroy the queue. And if the Borg show up, I mean, there's no way the Borg's going to pass the test on this planet. They're just going to be like, you know, wanting to assimilate something. And yeah, boom, universe is done. Starting mm-hmm. over again. We're all gone. The queue are gone. Everything is just gone. Which is a scary thought because this plant's probably been out there for thousands and thousands of years, I assume. Billions, probably. Billions. Yeah. So what what has prevented anybody else from finding it? Mm. And what makes Q think that humans are going to find it? Which I guess we'll talk about a little later here. But, you know, it's... I, I like the idea, but at the same time, I'm just like, really, it's taken all this time for somebody to find the planet? Like, I, I don't know. Uh, it's maybe. a big universe. <laughs> it is, but the concern that the Borg are going to find it before the humans, it's like, what, all of a sudden there's this race all of a sudden after billions of years between these two species? I don't know. Well, the the thing that I find interesting about this is the Q don't even see it as like billions of years because one of my favorite things is he keeps saying that like for the past few moments I've been guiding humanity towards oh, yeah. this. So like this is just like a blip of time to the Q. Like, you know, they met Picard at Farpoint less than a moment ago, <laughs> you know, and it's just this, this, it's crazy to think on this whole different level of uh, these beings and how they perceive things. And then to think that them they are so far above the queue, even that, you know, a universe can be just created and get to this point, probably like in an afternoon. And they're like, Oh, this is boring. Let's try again. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get to that piece. Uh, the ultimate Q story. Let's just hit that because okay. this is a great time to talk about that because the novel does suggest that all these events that Q has done with our Enterprise crew from the TV series, and I guess you could assume any of the novels too, but all of these previous Q visits to the Enterprise in the next generation were his plot in guiding them and preparing humanity to meet, quote, them or capital T, them. So all these things that he's been doing has been leading up to this moment to prevent the end of the universe. This has all been all for this moment. (laughs) I love it. 
I, love I know it. you do. <laughs> I mean, it's a great concept. It made me want to go back and rewatch all the Q episodes and like, okay, yeah, how does all this tie together to bring this to the moment where humanity proves to them that we're not boring and keep this universe going? And I love how they they work it because sometimes a Q episode, you're like, you know, why is Q bothering with these humans? He's omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. Why is he trying to become a part of their crew? Like, what's what's the purpose here? And taking it at face value in the episode, I never really thought it made a lot of sense. I still like Q episodes. I think he's an interesting character. But it never really, I was like, okay, why, what's he doing? Like, you know, what's the purpose of this? And then, you know, all good things comes along. And, you know, it seems like they're saying that Q has been testing humanity this whole time. But even just that, you're like, well, why though? Like, what's the, what's the point? You know, with this novel, it really does tie it all together. And even the mo- the smallest little things like Keith DeCandido has worked in why Q made Data laugh be an important part in how everything resolves. Um, the one exception, and I loved it, was, you know, it was like, well, what about when you transported us to Sherwood Forest and we did all that? And Q's like, I just wanted to see how you looked in tights. that i thought was good i'm sure there was probably some other reason that q's not even saying but i liked that (laughs) so let me make sure that i'm perceiving this in the correct manner or the way that you perceived it so yeah this has always been a test in a sense i mean we've always known that q's testing picard and is testing humanity and they're kind of his play things and he seems to want to learn things about them by doing all these tests but if q is really in the back of his mind saying okay there's going to be a time when this ship is going to approach this planet and have to confront them and we could either save the universe by entertaining them or making things less boring or they could just show up and them ends the universe so Mm -hmm. Picard, and yes, this is really, we definitely have been in spoiler territory because we're going to the end here on this one. But as you mentioned, Data's laugh, that's a key point because as things are being destroyed and, and, and Picard's going through this test with the planet, he starts to laugh. His laughter is what convinces them to keep the universe going. Now, Mm -hmm. am I perceiving that correctly that Picard laughing was entertaining. Maybe is that the right word entertaining enough to them or just that, that the fact that he responded in a different manner than they expected was interesting to them. It, it seems like it. And, and I mean, we can go into It's interesting. You put it that way because I read this whole thing about what is humor and uh, somebody has this hypothesis that humor is when your expectations are thwarted. Like, that's basically what humor is. You expect something to go one way, but it doesn't. It goes a different way. And your body releases that energy that you've pent up as laughter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's basically what happened here. Like, I think these, them, they were expecting this to go one way. And then Picard started laughing. And they're like, huh, I didn't see that coming. All right, let's, let's keep this going, I guess. Um, you know, which seems ridiculously silly on the face of it, but 
you know, the way they tied that in and not just with data laughing, but also, uh, when Picard, when Q took Picard back to his, uh, past self, when he got into the fight with the Nausicans, he was stabbed through the heart and he looked down and saw the blade and started laughing. And that came back to Picard as well in that moment. And just like all these little things, I I think it was, a it was maybe a bit of a whimsical way to end it, but like it worked for me. Like I thought it was kind of a delightful, like, Oh, humor. That's what, that's what separates, you know, the, the interesting part of us lower life forms from these vast entities. Maybe, you know, it's something as simple as that. And it's very, like, it's a very science fiction thing. You know, you get that a lot in Star Trek where like the aliens are like, we're attempting to, uh, discover the human concept of morality or the human concept of humor. And maybe like that's all it took to make humanity interesting enough to want to keep this thing going. Yeah. It's I'm just trying to think back <laughs> to these episodes with Q and it's like, you know, okay. Like account encounter at far point, you know, like how's that, what he did there with Picard and the crew, like how did that lead to this moment or what? Like, it, it, yeah, it, it's almost like he's testing Picard to the point that he, Picard just, becomes like delirious in a sense to things <laughs> you know i mean because you think about Q's style i mean it he he kind of trivializes things in a lot of ways you know and he kind of teases them and it's almost like you know i'm going to keep poking the bear and you're going to get more and more agitated and at some point you're just going to like not even care anymore or you're just going to get to a point where you're just like you know throw your hands up in the air and laugh about it and just ah fine, whatever, <laughs> you know, it's, it's mm. like, is that what he's doing? You know, it's, it's like, it's just really fascinating. Cause yeah, you can't make a Borg laugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, I, I don't even think that Q necessarily knew exactly how humanity would convince them to not destroy the universe. Oh, Yeah. That's a good point. I feel like he was like, these humans have a quality that makes them interesting. And they're going to be, if anyone can save us, it's going to be them. So I'm going to kind of foster them and, and, and lead them to this point. And this Picard fellow, I think he's got what it takes. I don't know exactly what yet, but you know, I'm, I'm going to foster things. And the real key to it, of course, was, uh, all good things where Picard's jumping between the different time periods and realizes the paradox of it all and pushes his way through that and figures it out. And Q's like, okay, I'll help you figure that out. And once you've realized that, when we get to this novel and it's an even bigger paradox where he's jumping, not just through time periods, but uh, to different versions of himself on, in all these quantum universes, he realizes the paradox of it and is able to push through it and figure it out. And like, that's what gets him to get into the cave kind of thing. And from that point on, Q's like, I think humanity's got what it takes. I don't know exactly how this is going to play out, but I think Picard's going to do it. And Picard laughed. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think you're right. I don't think he knew how he was going to respond because Q could have been the one to just appear on the planet and dealt with them, but didn't know how to. It, It took something that he finds interesting in the universe, and if he finds it interesting and unpredictable, then them will also. 
Mm-hmm. that they might have the same reaction because even early in the novel as the crew's trying to figure some things out he's like come on like you can't notice this you can't figure this out come on you guys you know you're off the mark you're, it's almost like you know he's expecting like it's obvious but they don't find it obvious like humanity's always like doing something differently than what Q would do or, or when he gets it they don't get it or they get it and he doesn't get it it's always like something opposite like he, yeah he never knows what he's going to get but he's trying to steer them in a direction and he knows they'll eventually get there but they do it on their own and picard's reaction is on his own it's his own reaction it's not logical it's not vulcan it's not borg it's a you don't know what you're going to get and therefore that's interesting this universe needs to continue because it can only get more interesting after that yeah that that makes perfect sense i mean it doesn't, but <laughs> I like it in the context of this book. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> so how do we feel about how the story plays out in Q's role in moving the plot along? Do you like that it's Q doing this? Do you, do you, I mean, I guess I picked up that you do like this whole Q connection to the previous stories and such. But did it the the first time you read this book years ago, did it sit well with you or did it take a second reading for it to make more sense? I remember really enjoying it and, you know, being a little confused, but, but generally enjoying it. I, it it was long enough ago. I don't remember exactly, but I get the impression this time around. I enjoyed it a lot more. I think I, I really liked the, uh, how it all kind of connected everything together in a, in a cohesive whole that, you know, in the mind of Keith DeCandido, like, I wish I could come up with this stuff. (laughs) Like, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I I really enjoyed it too, but being the first time I've read it, there were times where it's like, okay, am I really getting this? Is this, you know, it, it's kind of making sense, but I'm not sure. I really do believe in this novel. I think a second read through would really you get probably a lot more out of it. It's because you know where it's going, and it probably makes even more sense. Therefore, mm-hmm. being more entertaining. I would almost say it's worth it because it is a quick read too. Yeah. Um, not just in length. There's something about the way it's written that just made this one a real page turner, even though I've read it before. Like I just, it flows really quickly. I, you know, it's interesting you said that because I kept reading this thinking, wait, is this DeCandido's novel? Yeah, this is DeCandido. Because it didn't, it seemed to move faster, the reading than previous novels of his not to say that his don't other novels don't flow but it just it felt like there was a different pace to it than Mm -hmm. his other novels that we've read recently and the length maybe seems to me seemed a little shorter than most of his other novels too i think so yeah there is definitely that side of it as well it is it is a shorter novel um i'm not sure the page count but yeah it's it it felt a lot shorter so you mentioned earlier also about picard jumping to different ships or, you know, ships from different universes and stuff. And this is also addressed in the book where uh, it kind of relates to the episode of parallels because Worf is now instrumental in stopping a quantum fissure from what we learned in that episode of parallels. And we see multiple enterprises with various crews. So you see different, you know, from different dimensions. So you start to see, you know, a ship of the enterprise E and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, well data's still alive because data's on that ship or Wesley Crusher's the captain where Picard is the first officer. 
and you know just just different combinations of things like that going on and there was one too where weren't they almost like uh robotic or something oh was there was it where he was the only person aboard and the whole ship was computerized? Uh, and Oh yeah. It made me think of like Cerebro. Like yes. it made me think he was connected to the ship. Like, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was it. So yeah, there's all different kinds of weird things like that going on. And then there was a, uh, was there a Klingon version? Yeah. The Klingons had captured the enterprise and Picard was, uh, basically think the deep space nine episode shattered mirror where Regent Worf has Garrick in a, in a neck chain thing. That's kind of what I pictured yeah. for this, except it's Picard who's, you know, his slave because they've taken over the enterprise and most of the Federation. <laughs> so yeah, all that was pretty cool. That was a lot of fun. Cause it's moving from one to the other, but every situation there of Picard was the Picard from our universe experiencing and taking the place of the Picard from that universe, if that makes any sense. So yeah, it's getting mm-hmm. to what you were talking about earlier, which is helping him figure things out just like in all good things. So right. what what do you think of all that? I, that's the one part that when I got to that, I really remembered that from reading it the first time. I remember them coming across the, the same type of thing as in parallels so I like that in this novel, we find out that was Q that basically put that uh, anomaly in the path of Worf's shuttle to start that whole adventure off. And, you know, I'm I'm not usually a fan of writers coming along and saying like, oh, Q did a thing. It's Q. It's Q. It's always Q. But this one really worked because to me, this felt like the definitive Q story. This is the reason for Q. We're not just bringing them in for shenanigans and, and, and that kind of thing. There's a real purpose to this. So incorporating the parallels idea and, and all of that, I thought was a really neat way to bring that all together as well. And if Q is kind of leading the enterprise to this moment, it's interesting to me that if he caused the events in parallels that he chose Worf and not Picard, Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he knows that Worf was still going to be there, maybe even be first officer by this point. Yeah. And this is kind of what I meant earlier when I was like, the Q are so far above us that like, I don't really get, I didn't before get why he was interested in humans and like, liked playing with them. Because like, if you think about it, it's like a human being playing with bacteria or something. They're just so far above us that Q probably just could look and see the patterns of like, Oh, well, this will happen. This will happen. This will happen. I don't know. Worf will be in command of the enterprise that day. So, uh, yeah, let's make Worf be the one that comes across this, you know, that's just, yeah. he can figure that out. Just and it's by just, looking at things. And it's interesting that he didn't necessarily was able to tell if they would get past this moment or not. Or maybe he does know that they will pass the test. But he just I mean, knows I, that he I has think, to be instrumental in it. Yeah, and I think he suspects they will because he's the one that's trying to convince the Q continuum. No, no, these are the guys. Like these these people can do it. And the continuum's like, nah, I don't think so. But Q's like, I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling about old Baldy. He can pull this off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and shame on us because we keep saying humans, but it really isn't about humans. Because we're talking more here and and Klingons. It's really humanoids, I guess. I I don't even know if that would work, really, Mm -hmm. because, you know, whatever, Federation members or, you know, Starfleet people. (laughs) I mean, when it comes down to it, it's Picard. Like, yeah. Q has always had an interest in the crew and and stuff, but it's always 
in Picard that he really focuses on. And I think that's where he sees the glimmer that will save them. And it's not just, you know, shine off the top of his head. It's a real glimmer of hope for the universe. So I'm, I'm just trying to think about the recent comics that we'd be getting the Q conflict, what that test had to do that led to this moment when he brought the hmm. DS nine Voyager and original series crews together. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. I don't know. I'm not going to think about that now, but I just wondered. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Worf, uh, we have seen that he's changed a lot in the last several years. And when he first was on the enterprise and then on deep space nine, and then he's an ambassador and then he returns to the enterprise in the role of first officer. And uh, there's, a, you know, he, he's a character, as you mentioned, Dan, all star Trek, it's the story of Worf. Absolutely. That's he's the main character of all of Star Trek. He has the most hours of screen time of any character. I yep. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And, and he's always been like, you know, well, Captain, let me fight him. Captain, let's go after them. Captain. And it's always like, no, Mr. Wolf, stand down. You know? mm-hmm. And now he's, you know, he's tempered his instincts now, right? To now to a point that his suggestion with dealing with Q is, you know, treat him like a child. You know, a child has a temper tantrum. Sometimes the best thing to do is just ignore them because they want attention. And Worf is like, let's just ignore Q. <laughs> yeah. No battle, no fighting, just ignore him. And I, I really like this because they um, the, the author draws attention to this several times in the book. You know, like when we first encounter Q, you know, he jumps out of his seat and pulls out his phaser. Picard's like, do you intend to blast a hole in the view screen, Mr. Wolf? You know, he's, he's got that, you know, fight or flight instinct and it's fight. Like that's what he always goes with. But now as first officer, you know, Q shows up and security officer goes to pull out his phaser and Worf's like, just puts his hand on his shoulder. He shakes his head. You know, Worf, Worf's got this, like he's really, uh, matured a lot and i don't know matured is the right term but tempered his instincts to the point that he you know comes up with this strategy of you know not fighting and in fact says you know let's ignore q and talana hears this strategy um let's everyone is ordered to ignore q and she even thinks to herself like oh well Worf didn't come up with that i'm sure you know Picard said that or something, blah, blah, blah. She later finds out, no, that was Worf's suggestion. And she's like, oh, okay. I've misjudged Worf. And, you know, it's really cool that he's become this, um, through his experiences, not just in Starfleet, but I'm sure being an ambassador and stuff, he's kind of become this more elder statesman type figure rather than just someone who's going to immediately reach for a phaser or, immediately jump into a fight he'll fight when he has to but he knows when not to yeah yeah and especially being an ambassador and more in politics i can see where that will maybe temper him some but he is on the klingon homeworld when he's doing that so that that could affect <laughs> him being more klingon but uh not necessarily and you know he's a father you know he's he's raised his son alexander and he may have learned some things that you know like I said earlier, sometimes the best way to deal with a temperamental child is just to ignore him. We used to put 
our kids in what we call timeout, you know, it's like mm-hmm. they throw a little fit and we say, go into timeout and you just ignore them and they can throw a fit for a while, but when they don't get their way, they give up and they go, oh, this temper tantrum thing doesn't work. And then they stop doing it. And it's almost like, okay, let's ignore Q. And it's funny how you see, you know, Worf and Talana in, in the turbo lift and Q shows up and he's trying to get them riled up and they're just talking to each other as if he's not even there. He's like, oh, you're just as boring as Picard and Jordy or whatever. And he leaves, you know, and he goes to somebody else and, oh, you guys are just as boring, you know, and it was really getting to him that he kept leaving. You know, <laughs> we're so used to them going, Q, leave, get out of here, Q. It's like when they just ignore him, he leaves on his own. And I mean... I put myself into that scene in particular in the turbo lift. And I was like, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I'd be like, I'd engage. I'd be all, damn it, Q, blah, blah. Wait, crap. <laughs> That's what you want me to do. <laughs> right. But I guess they've had enough dealings with Q now that it's a little easier to easier to ignore him because, you know, we know what he's like, you know? <laughs> yeah. Q's like those trolling comments on YouTube video. Like, don't engage. Just ignore. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I, I mean, we covered a lot of what's in the novel, but uh, yeah, it's kind of one big thing. It's not a bunch of, you know, things. It's just this big thing we're talking about and, and, and getting to this moment with this planet and, and getting them not to destroy the universe. But uh, before we get into our final thoughts, I do want to talk quickly about the cover because the cover had me a little confused because, I mean, it's very simple. Um, there's, there's an officer, a Starfleet officer standing there and, uh, we only see like the bottom half of his face. It is a male. And my first thought was, oh, I think that's data. And then I thought, no, 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 that's Picard. And I thought, no, that's Q. (laughs) And then I went back (laughs) to being data and I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense if it was data. I can't really tell who this person is on the cover. Do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's supposed to be Q. I, that's just my best guess, but it does look a bit like Data. And I mean, you know, if it was Data, I guess Data's presence is felt a little bit in this novel. It kind of weighs on what Jordy's going through, but I really, th- it, it might have originally been a picture of Data, but I think it's supposed to be Q. I think it's supposed to be Q too. And I mean, we can't tell from the color because the color, it's, it's like a blue black cover. You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing in a full color. So it's not like we can tell like, Oh, the white skin tone or whatever data or something, you know, it's not that. So I think it is supposed to be Q, but it sure does look a lot like data to me, like Brent Spiner. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't, I guess I didn't look at it closely enough before, but I've seen a few people online saying that. And then I was like, Oh, okay. So I looked at it a little closer and yeah, it does look, it's data ish. It's data esque. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it's not just me. I didn't even know other people online were talking about that. So. Mm-hmm. I saw that somewhere on, on a maybe Trek BBS or something like that. I was like, oh, I guess it does kind of look a little like data. Hmm. So, Dan, that being said, what are your final thoughts here? What's your ratings for Q&A? Well, I, like I, I think is pretty apparent from this episode. I really enjoyed this novel. I think, uh, you know, there's a tendency to overuse Q sometimes. Uh, we have him showing up in, in novels and uh, comics. We're right in the middle of a big Q arc right now that we're waiting for the final issue for. Uh, and, and sometimes I get a little tired of Q. Uh, 
Um, I actually have a friend right now who's watching Star Trek The Next Generation for the first time after she watched, uh, she's been watching Star Trek Discovery with us and got hooked and is now watching The Next Generation. And she, whenever she sees Q in the title of an episode, she goes, oh God, she does not like Q. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I kind of like Q, but he does go a little bit far sometimes. I think there's a ten- tendency to overuse him. So I remember going into this novel the first time thinking like, oh, great. You know, we had the Borg in the last novel. Now we're going to have the Q again. Are we just going to have Borg and Q all the time? And, you know, let's have some new ideas. But reading this novel, I really enjoyed it. I think uh, Keith DeCandido has set, you know, a pretty difficult task before him, which is to tie together all of the Q's visits. And, um, you know, he does mention some of the other stuff that didn't really figure in a lot. He was going on some adventures with Vash because he thought Vash was interesting, I guess. You know, that doesn't really figure into it much. But, you know, he also works in, you know, trying to have a child with Catherine Janeway and then the that whole thing with the Q Jr. and stuff he works in as well. So, you know, it's pretty cool that he's able to bring all this together and even just seeing Picard in tights was (laughs) one of the big goals of Q, I guess. But I I think this is a fun novel. It's full of a huge amount of imagination. And on top of that, I love the character work. I love these new characters and how they're being worked in. I remember not really enjoying that as much the first time around, but now reading it and like, okay, I see where they're going with these characters and what they're trying to do. So, you know, I would maybe shave it off a little bit from five. I wouldn't say it's a full five star novel, but maybe like a, a 4.725 out of five, um, maybe 4.725 out of five, officer security people that lay Ben's on isn't thrilled about having to lead, but you know, <laughs> he's okay with it for now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. You know, uh, sometimes I wish our opinions varied more than they do, but your rating is very similar to where I was going <laughs> in, in the scale because I wouldn't give it a perfect five, but I, this, this novel sits more at a, a four out of five for me for the most part, but the fact, the idea of this novel, and like you're saying, you know, we've had a lot of Q before we've had a lot of Borg and there's not really much Borg in this, but it does play a little part of it. And we have a little bit of Jane way in here and, and things, but the fact that the novel will actually change the way I look at Q stories going forward. This novel will always pop into my head. I know it's not Canon, But regardless, I'm going to think next time I watch an episode with Q or read a book with Q or a comic with Q, I'm going to think how, oh, you know what? This is kind of leading up to that test that, you know, saves the universe with the them. I mean, this novel is going to stick in my head. So it's going to change my outlook on how I look at these episodes of Q. And I love having something that changes my view of something in a franchise and the storytelling. So that gets up a notch more for me. So, uh, and by the way, the characterization of Q was spot on. All the characteriza- characterizations were spot, spot on. And of course we love the second char- secondary new characters that came along. So I would say that I would give this, I'm not going to do a scale of five, but I'll do a scale of 10 to make it easier for me. But I give this, 
nine out of 10 caverns that I just somehow can't get into. Nice. That That's a really good rating. And, and yeah, I like that you brought up the idea that it changes that aspect of the, yeah, that's the goal of these novels, I think, is to um, add to our enjoyment of Star Trek. And this one definitely does that. Well, and that's the thing about writing outside of the series and writing these novels is every author has their own perspective of things. So whether they change your view of Star Trek or you see that they see Star Trek maybe in a slightly different manner or look at a character a little differently than you, it's always something to me that is very interesting and just enriches it because you can pick and borrow ideas that you never thought of before and bring them into your head when you watch Star Trek and say, okay, I see this now, or this is how I view things now, which is differently than the first time I watched it. That's what's really interesting to me. I think we were both pretty impressed with this novel. And just a further to what we were discussing uh, just a minute ago, the the idea that this novel changes how you look at the Star Trek universe. I was trying to think, there's another novel that did that for me recently. And I was trying to think while we were talking what it was, and it just came to me. And this leaves me with the same feeling that David Mack's novel, Section 31 Control, did, where we learn about the Yuri uh, AI that's been, you know, there from the very beginning of the Federation. Uh, not necessarily changing things, but kind of subtly influencing things in the background. And that book really makes me look at certain episodes and certain events in the Star Trek universe in a different way. And just from a slightly different angle, just like this book does with the Q encounters. So that, that feeling that I get from that, I, I really like that. And I think that's really cool. Whether you accept it in your own personal continuity or not, you know, maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I think it gives us a really cool perspective. I love that you brought up control because you're exactly right. That is that same feeling and, it, and control has changed my perspective of when I watch Star Trek. Sometimes I can, I think about, Ooh, is maybe control was behind this. Maybe Kirk and the enterprise went to that planet because control led them that way. And in a lot of ways we're talking about that with Q, you know, the episode parallels well, because you know, Q was actually behind that. I mean, in some ways it's, you know, you don't want to look at this and think, well, all our characters are always being led by Q or control and they're not really doing things on their own. But it's an interesting perspective to look at that way. And I have done that with control to the point that when Discovery season two talked about section 31 in control and everybody's like, oh, it's not the control in the books. It's just what they call the, you know, the headquarters of the operations of section 31. The, you know, they just call it control. And I'm like, yeah, but in my mind, the AI is behind it. It's called control because an AI is behind it. And then sure enough, there was an AI involved mm -hmm. in the AI. Was, I was like, well, this fits in perfectly to where my mind was going anyway. So yeah, I, I love that stuff, but definitely. Yeah, yeah, and it, it can all fit together if you just squint a little bit. Maybe it doesn't line up exactly perfectly, but it all works together, I think, close enough to be really cool and really add something neat to uh, the viewing experience. Absolutely. And it's been fun talking about things that really make, you know, Star Trek special and unique in our perspectives today. But it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. But in this case, I like the character 
in the fact that she's a counselor and a Vulcan. Because when you go to a counselor, most of the time it's about your emotions or dealing with your emotions. So how ironic it is that a Vulcan is the person you go to to figure out how to deal with emotional issues Mm -hmm. from a non-emotional person. Earl Grey. Episodic TV is really good for watching in bed before you go to sleep. Because you can go to bed, watch a little 45 minute episode, and by the end you're almost asleep. So it's it's like a, a nice little comfort blanket. You're saying Star Trek puts you to sleep? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Actually, yes. I am, even though I love it, it does. If I didn't have it on the background, I probably wouldn't sleep. Because I've become so used to it. Interesting. So it's like a, a soothing presence. Oh yeah, it's that background noise of life. Star Trek, the hum of the, the warp drive. The ready room. Do you feel like there are too many of these arcs, too many of these threads running through a 14-episode season? And I ask that because one of the more interesting stories to me, apart from the Red Angel, the big story, is the stamets Culber story. Mm -hmm. And I think that both the actors, Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp, have done an amazing job of portraying this story. The chemistry between them feels so real, and I've really connected with the emotions behind this story, but I feel shortchanged. I feel like we're only dipping in here and there Mm -hmm. just enough to remind us that that story is going on, whereas I would like to see it develop more, and I feel like maybe they're just trying to do too much in too little time. Warp 5. But I think Brandon's right. You can jump to bound and have the same thing. Yeah, you can jump to bound and have the same thing. Because you could have him say, I want to leave, then find his replacement. Whatever, whatever happens in between, now he decides to stay and there's a problem because this guy wants to stay. Which plays out all in bound. Correct. So I think... I'm not going to be able to drive Brandon as crazy as I want to. I will say no. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a star rating and a written review. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well, though. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and you can do that by becoming a patron of the network through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you'll get all the details and the perks include access to all early episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And we have a special patrons website called Patron Zone. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, is to join in the larger conversation on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And we always have a post every week of the new episode that you can comment on there. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to me and Bruce. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you can find the network on Goodreads, and that's that reading group website social media platform for books or whatever and we have a group on there called literary treks so just go to goodreads and search for literary treks and click join group and we'll let you in you can see all the previously covered books also you can see what we're currently reading and you know what's coming up on future episodes and we'd like to thank norman c lau ken tripp greg rosier brandon shane mutala justin ozer and jeffrey harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not on the enterprise yucking it up with the security officers and Jordy comes over and says, you know what? I think you're a jerk, but buy me a beer. You might be a cool guy after a few drinks. Where can people find you? Well, you know what? I am a cool guy and I would definitely buy Jordy a beer. I loved his work on reading rainbow. I think that guy's awesome, but, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K E R T R A T S. Uh, you can also find me on youtube.com slash Kurtrats productions where, uh, I make videos mostly about star Trek. And of course you can find me on Facebook in the Babel conference, usually lurking, but sometimes commenting. Now, Bruce, when you're not jumping between different versions of yourself in various quantum realities... Wait, was Amy Nelson your co-host in that one? Oh, and I think you're on Earl Grey in that one. That's weird. Where can we find you? Well, when I'm not in this universe, you can find me on Warp 5. And in the other universe, you can find me on The Ready Room. And no, no, no. Actually, where you can find me on Trek FM in this universe would be live from the edge. When a Discovery episode comes out, the next night we do a live show, me and Brandy Jacola, we do that. And uh, so, yeah, when season three comes back of Discovery, we'll probably be doing that again. And also you can find me doing the Star Wars report, which is about, of course, Star Wars. So check out that podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. So thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.